imagine you were running a marathon and had your like were blindfolded the whole time you literally had to go 26 miles without knowing where you were going um i think that's like the best analogy for a phd this is sham saladi a graduate student in biochemistry and molecular biophysics at caltech he's nearing the end of his own blindfolded marathon the process was also like you know perhaps taking those blindfolds off so i I felt like i spent a lot of time working on something that i won't i won't finish the marathon doing you know going a completely completely different direction Sham sat down with Heidi to talk about his research and his work philosophy. Though he describes his work as blindfolded wandering, he also sees himself as a sort of scientific janitor, focusing on the invisible and unglamorous work that is nonetheless necessary to systematically and carefully advance the field. Perhaps, as Sham reminds us, many parts of research are incremental and occasionally tedious. A janitor does something that's... that's provides a really essential service um, and without whom you know we couldn't function but one doesn't really you know appreciate or many don't really explicitly appreciate their work partially because it's invisible and it's good absolutely partially exactly and so you know I think that there's a sort of recognition or you know myself recognizing that doing the, the invisible stuff make is is really important and one just has to be confident that it's important and feel and have some real you know self-fulfillment that that what you're doing is important and that it's worthwhile and you should keep doing it no one would accuse sham of overconfidence though i try not to think i'm very special i'm just a some lowly person in the world who who writes code I'm Sophia Chiron. And I'm Heidi Klumpa. This is Not My Thesis, a podcast where we understand science via the hearts and minds creating it. In the second chapter of Not My Thesis, Sham Salati talks about two things he's built, a model to predict protein expression and something called Jet Fighter. He also talks about what a good idea is and what it means to make an impact on the scientific community. And that, in his experience, sometimes making that impact doesn't take very long at all. I am a biologist, um, and when I say that, I mean uh, what, what I mean is I work on biological systems. One of the motivating things about my research is is recognizing that cells are just bags of water that are surrounded by oil, um, this thin layer of oils. This layer is the cell membrane, which is necessary to keep cells alive and acts a little bit like an oil. Because oil and water don't mix, this oily layer keeps the cells separate from the watery outside world. Making this oily layer is what separates life from not life. This was a sort of one of the first things you had to have just to, to create organisms or to define what an organism is. While essential for life, membranes also create a problem. You know, membranes are poses problem of, of separating cells from the environment. So you have to have these different sorts of entities you know within them to allow the transfer transfer of information and nutrients while interested in membranes sham started to focus on proteins located in these membranes they serve special functions connecting the inside of the cell to the outside environment all of them serve a specific purpose which is just so cool you know you can have proteins that sense fluoride in the environment or chloride or they you know bring in glucose to the cell 
and you know without any or many of these or without a couple these cells aren't super happy one type of membrane protein is an ion channel these proteins sit in the membrane and can open up a channel or hole in the membrane to let in certain molecules that couldn't pass through otherwise most of these molecules coming in have an electric charge so they're called ions Ions entering the cell through an ion channel can cause extremely rapid cell responses because they directly change the environment inside the cell. Some of Sham's favorite membrane proteins are these ion channels, which control the rapid cellular responses underlying many essential processes. One of these is the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. Perhaps this is a familiar sounding name. These receptors are sensitive to nicotine from tobacco. Well, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, it's at, it sits at the neuromuscular junction and, and it allows your nerves and your nervous system to control your muscles. So it takes your thoughts and turns them into the physical, you know, actions in the physical world, which is super, super cool. When you have a thought, that thought is communicated to your neurons, which then must tell your muscles what to do. The neurons release molecules, but since the muscle cells are protected by the cell membrane, the cell needs to accept these molecules to get the message. The nicotinic acetylcholine receptors allow your neurons to send rapid messages to your muscle cells, causing them to contract. Another of Sham's favorite ion channel families is also responsible for muscle contraction. And it also it sits in your sinus node of your heart and allows, um, well, make sure your heart keeps beating. So ion channels and membrane proteins are super critical for our existence. I think, I think they're all sort of beautiful in their own right. Because membrane proteins are so important, we want to know how they behave. A crucial part of this is understanding their structure. That is, the precise arrangement of the protein building blocks that determines how well the proteins perform their critical functions. For his PhD, Sham wanted to make it easier to study the structure of these membrane proteins. So I started off at Caltech trying to, well, trying to ask a basic question, which is, can we make the study of these proteins that live in membranes much, much, much easier? Mm. One can really spend a PhD, and many people spend a whole PhD, um, you know, seven or eight years or more, um, trying to figure out the three-dimensional structure of a protein that lives in the membrane. Um, and, you know, if you look at the, the you know, National Institutes of Health and the amount of money they spend, it costs about a million dollars per structure of a protein that lives in the membrane. Um, and so I wanted to address... And how many, I guess, like, how many, like, given how many things there are in membranes, like, that's, is that, we're talking about, like, millions and millions yeah, of dollars? Yeah, the NIH has spent mil has millions and millions and millions of dollars, probably in the hundreds of millions or more mm -hmm. of dollars, trying to simply get structures, not even trying to figure out functions of proteins that live in membranes. Why does this cost so much? It's because the difficult process of determining these structures has a very low success rate. To correctly determine the structure of a protein, you need a lot of it. But getting a lot of the protein is hard because you need to convince a cell to make more of it than it would ever actually want to under normal conditions. And usually, the cell type where you found the protein, which could be a muscle cell from humans or another organism, doesn't grow in your lab, so you need to transplant the instructions for making the protein, which is the DNA, into another cell type. These steps require scientists to manipulate biological processes that are not fully understood, so often something goes wrong. You often don't get a lot of the protein, and you don't know why. And by often, I mean that there's a less than 6% chance that you'll actually be able to figure out the structure of a protein you're interested in. 
And so my basic question was, can we make this process easier and faster, um, and maybe more rational instead of sort of hodgepodge and and inter based on you know what one hears and what one sees and sort of you know day to day lab. And if you had a you know a family of proteins that you're interested in, for example, you you're interested in the protein that humans have, but also you know mice have it and and cows have it and other single cell organisms that look like ha look like us have it. Which one might you work on? Could you pick one to work on that would have the best chance of success? As a scientist, there are infinitely many proteins that might be interesting, but you only have money and time for a few. So how do you choose where to start with the greatest chance that all the steps succeed? How about let's try and take everything that we know and things we think, you know, maybe are just sort of rules of thumb that, pe that people have. Um, can we put this together in some sort of mathematical model? And then you know you can take you know the hundreds and hundreds of proteins that you know are similar to the human one you're interested in, and sort them you know score them all and then sort them and then pick the top five or ten that are that are high, of highest score. Sham's goal was to predict whether you'll be successful at producing a lot of protein before you begin the long process of actually trying to do so. His hypothesis was that there are features of the protein that could predict how much of it would be made in a new cell type. As Sham said, there are standard mathematical models to relate an input, like a protein feature, to an output, like how much of the protein is made. To do this, you use available data. Just sort of put all these protein features and their outcomes into a pot, and then let the model compute different relationships until it lands on a set that appears to work. It's like sampling a thousand people and recording their height, and then meticulously recording their attributes. Maybe their sex, their diet as a child, which illnesses they had when they were young, their parents' heights, the relevant DNA strands, and then asking a computer to predict the height of a new person, one that you haven't measured. Here, the height is the amount of protein produced, and the attributes might be the way that a protein folds, or maybe the presence of a specific pattern of the protein building blocks, or perhaps the part of the DNA strand immediately before the relevant instructions. But how do you know which attributes to use? So the, the approach we took was, we, you know, we looked through all the literature and asked all of our colleagues, um, what do you think um, is involved in the biogenesis of membrane proteins, how a protein gets made in the cell? And then we said, OK, what numbers can we calculate from that? So that might be, you know, one of those one of those features is like how oily are segments of the protein? You know, thinking about, you know, things are if the segments are oily, then they'll make it into the membrane properly. Um, so we came up with, painstakingly came up with 98 or 99 of these um, and took lots and lots of going through, uh, going through papers and emailing authors and asking for data sets and turning PDF files into CSVs and... Um, Wait, you mean people sent you PDFs of tables of data? I got PDFs, I got, I got images of lab notebooks um, with, you know, 96 wells of data, you know, and time points of these. Take a moment to fully appreciate this. Spending hours typing something up that was previously, or should have been previously typed, but not sent or given to you in the appropriate format is, in my opinion, one of the most intensely frustrating types of work. And so I took, it took, I took spent about two years trying to put data together. Um, and, but it, was re it worked out really nicely. Once you put the data together and you calculate all the things you need to calculate and spend, a, spent about the same two years you know, collecting data and also putting together code, 
you can run when, once you run the model after all of that you get you get something that does predict memory protein expression mm. um, as we call it on the the set that was most surprising um, was was that if you tr if you try to tra to train a model without using the nucleotide information so the sequence the sequence uh, the DNA sequence that 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 codes for the proteins of the memory the pro the amino acids for the protein that you're trying to make if you take all the information out of the model, mm -hmm. um, it it really loses a lot of predictive power. That's crazy. And it's sort you know it's sort of it's definitely a central dogma tells you that's not that shouldn't be the case. The central dogma states that DNA provides instructions for what's called RNA, which provides instructions for the building of a protein. The specific molecular details are complicated, but allow different DNA sequences to generate the same protein. This is sort of like how a recipe can include TSP or teaspoon, and the instruction is interpreted identically. You would be surprised that a recipe turned out better if you wrote TSP instead of teaspoon, since the baker adds the same amount regardless. Yet, this is what Sham found. Even for what we traditionally think of as synonymous changes in the protein-making instructions, there are different outcomes. This is exciting because it means that, at least for membrane proteins, the central dogma is an oversimplified picture of all the steps needed to make a protein. Perhaps this can lead us to a better understanding. We had really taken an engineering point of view for this problem, saying, can we, can we build something to help other people? Um, and I think I learned two things about myself. One is while I enjoy, I really enjoy engineering problems, which is you know building stuff. Um, I, I just I, I I I'm not. I guess I wasn't I wasn't so interested in building things for other people to to solve problems for them. I was I what was what made me what was so much more interesting was these basic questions of how do proteins move around cells. I still build things because I like building things, um, but I I realized that if one wants to make an impact in the scientific community in or in the world, it doesn't take three years of work. It can be done in like one weekend. So I think this comes comes to one of the other projects that I've been working on, or that I worked on really over one weekend and then over a second or third weekend. So at, at Caltech, I've had a lot of fun teaching a course. Um, and one of the things we always tell, tell the students is you have to think about your colors before you use them. Colors are usually used for data visualization so that you can see three variables at one time, an x-axis, a y-axis, and a color axis. This allows scientists to look at a large number of variables and a lot of data to see if something looks unusual or odd or interesting and deserves further study. Just like looking at a topographical map of the U.S., that's color coded by elevation to understand where the mountains are. You're gonna map, you know, numbers to colors by using a color map. You need to make sure that the way you way you do the mapping also respects the fact that your eyes perceive different areas of the spectrum in different ways. For example, your eyes are much more tuned to changes in the reds than they are in the yellows or greens. Um, and it gives you a false impression of changes in your data when they actually don't exist. Just sort of like to do like two mental steps to realize that there's not an issue. Mm -hmm. um, so it turns out that there's that you can you know write this out as a mathematical function to map you know this question of can I map numbers to colors in a uniform way that respects the way our our eyes perceive colors.
so you're keeping the brightness levels brightness levels the same so a couple of researchers now five years ago developed a color map um, called Viridis that is purple goes from purple to to yellow to green, um, and it's and it's mathematically shown to be perceptually uniform. So if you look at it, it does it it does a, a robust mapping of numbers to colors. So I want to ask the question: How can we how can we speed up the it, it speed up the communities? Um, embrace of this new perceptual uniform perceptual uniform color map which is really much better than the rainbow one that everyone uses this rainbow one is often called jet making sham's program the jet fighter and goes from blue to cyan to yellow to orange to red it's called jet because it was first used to visualize fluids around planes Verides goes from yellow to green to a navy blue it looks quite nice this was sort of a challenge and a challenge I set out one Saturday morning in September. It was rain. I think, I don't know, it was cold outside or something and cold for Pasadena cold. And I sat on my machine and I said, okay, how can we do this? How can we, you know, and so I wrote, spent that morning saying, if I have any sort of image, can I detect what color map was used, if any? And so I spent, I don't know, it was like 60 lines of code. It wasn't much at all. And then I said, okay, let me ask a harder question. Can we contact every author out there that's ever used a rainbow color map to, you know, and send them a message saying, hey, you might try something else. Um, and it turns out that's a hard question, but an easier, easier thing to do is contact every author who puts up stuff on the bioarchive, a preprint archive. This is an open access place where scientists put their journal articles before they're published so that they can get feedback and share their work without waiting a long time for publication. At the end of 2018, BioArchives had more than 2,000 posts to it a month. So I spent that afternoon writing another, I don't know, that was probably 200 lines of code. All it does is it follows the BioArchive Twitter feed. Every time a, a BioArchive tweets about a new paper, it takes that tweet down, it downloads the paper, the PDF of the paper, turns all the pages to images, and then on each page just counts up the, the individual colors. And it compares the colors that it's found to the, the colors that make up a number of color maps. Um, and then says what percentage of a color map is, you know, if the percentage of the color map is high, so like, you know, most like 90% of the colors on a color map are, high, are, are covered, then you say, ah, oh, it's detected probably. The heuristic works really, really well to automatically send authors an email um, if they use a rainbow color map, pointing out, you know, the different page numbers, you know, where, uh, where, where rainbow color map was detected and, you know, that the additional resources on how they might use a better color map. Sign up personally has my name on there. Um, and you know, it says jetfighter slash sham. Sham estimates that about 10% of the posted papers receive an email, though he hasn't checked these numbers. Emails are sent either because the paper uses a jet color map or else because it uses colors indistinguishable for those with color blindness. Sham really does get responses. What I was surprised about and what everyone always asks me about is, I mean, if someone sent me an email like that after my hard work on a paper, I'd be pretty pissed. And I thought that would be true too, but I was willing to risk it. But what I found was people were generally really happy to get these emails. Um, they responded to me either asking, like, what do you mean? Can, can you help me change my color map? Um, or, you know, I've made this change, what do you think? Or like, okay, sounds good, we'll change it. And like the, and the other, only other response I've gotten is, sorry, the paper, like we, haven't, we didn't get a chance to change it for this paper, um, but we'll think about it, you know, we'll definitely do it going forward. Mm -hmm. And so all these positive responses were, 
really surprising um, and made me feel really warm with my scientific colleagues around the world. Um, and people were open to this, you know, to getting an email from an automated service with suggestions and then following them. Almost every paper with an email sent out has at least one person clicking on a link. Most papers have multiple authors, and they all receive the same link. Even one of these authors clicking on the link, even if they never change the figure, is a huge accomplishment. Sham has a hypothesis on why he gets such great responses. We spend so much time writing our papers, right? You know, writing papers and putting those texts together. So if somebody emails me about my paper, whether it's an automated system or not, like, yeah, I'm going to read it and, and ask whether they think it's they have real feedback or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's a op- uh, optimistic view, but I, I think it's probably true. Or maybe other scientists, just like Sham, care about their scientific impact and will gladly make a change that will help readers understand their work, especially if Sham tells them how to do so. The other part of this was asking about figures that have already been published. So say you have a figure that you want to show in a talk of somebody else's work, it's already published, you can't really change it, and, and you want to take it from this jet color map and turn into something that's perceptually uniform. Maybe you want to ask whether there's any 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 sorts of perceptual, you know, you want to check if there's any artifacts. Um, you can take the figure as like a JPEG, upload it to this website um, that me and an undergrad made as a summer project. And it basically takes each color and finds the corresponding color on a rainbow color map, and then goes from there to the underlying number that was used in the first place, and it just turns that to a different color map, like Meridis. Um, and it just works in your browser. Um, that's sort of nifty. Um, I, I've run into a number of people who are red, green, colorblind, and given them a link, and they thought it was pretty cool. Um, because so often you see papers and you you know you recognize. I mean, I, they tell me they recognize paper you know images where they can't really tell what's what. And so they try, apparently they tried the software and like it. While Jetfighter might not be a part of Sham's thesis, it is, just like his membrane protein model, a tool to make science better and more efficient. Of course, this project is distinct from Sham's other research because it doesn't fit onto a traditional graduate student resume. To get a professorship or a postdoc position, there's a sort of unofficial currency. It's some combination of the papers you write, the journals where these papers get accepted, and the number of citations these papers eventually receive. Jetfighter doesn't fit neatly into this, but it is still incredibly valuable to the community. All careers have things you're supposed to do to get to the next rung of the ladder, but people still spend many hours anonymously editing Wikipedia or quietly helping their colleagues and neighbors just because it's a good thing to do, and they enjoy it. I find myself respecting these people and their work more because they're not doing it for the accolades. I, the, the important thing is the scientific impact at the end of the day, whether, you know, if you're going to build things, whether the things you build are useful mm-hmm. and if they're helpful, if they're, you know, if it's about scientific impact, whether the things you're doing are reproducible and if they're, and, you know, they stand the test of time. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with the name of the journal you publish in. Um, I think it certainly has, has nothing to do with the number of people who cite you. Um, but, you know, I think this whole process of creating a model... This is the membrane protein model. What, what's funny is we spent two years or three years trying to figure this out, probably more than that. We had a great model and published it, had uh, and put it online. Um, 
and we get like a few hits from people like did like we used to we used, we used to get tons of interest when we went to conferences and talked to people about this but now the models online it just it's a couple of hits a month and i wondered you know is there is this really what i want to do you know is this what i've spent my like three years on um it was like super cool and you know definitely something that we couldn't do before but um i just made me sit back and say is this what i really enjoy if scientific impact is what drives you in a project it can be hard to continue when it feels like you're doing thorough and complete work but no one is noticing you can doubt that you are producing good work at all even though of course two hits a month is more than zero in graduate school we're trying to learn how to be good scientists but there is minimal feedback because most of the time things just don't work and the times when things do work it doesn't feel like you're doing anything differently. Nobody is looking over your shoulder telling you that, even though nothing you have done in the past few months is publishable, the way that you're doing it is good science. So how do you become this magical, better scientist? I compare myself to, uh, to people who I really respect, whose work I respect. And I, cause, and I certainly I respect their work, not because of where they publish, because when I read it, I realize this is really good stuff. I know where the field is and I know what advance they made and I recognize like, wow, what what cool thoughts. Um, and so, you know, I I think it, it, it it's it's trying to make meaningful judgments, not sort of shallow judgments, you know, if I may. These shallow judgments are the traditionally accepted markers of success the paper numbers, and publications in well-known journals. Of course, these journals do have a history of publishing groundbreaking research, though groundbreaking research and excellent creative research are not always the same thing. Perhaps getting a paper accepted in a well-known journal can feel like feedback on how the science was done, and the scientist who is doing it, instead of on the specific outcome of the paper topic. Lots of grad students, even the ones who are you know about to graduate, say like you know and had it put had had a paper just came out in Science, you know, high impact journal, and just for me, I just that's not how I think about things. And I think I don't know if they'll ever get to the place. Maybe they may they they might become professors who still think the most important thing is publishing and you know and getting getting citations for their work. Um, and I feel I feel I feel so freed actually to have come to that come to that real realization that that's not my goal and that's not the end goal as I see it. Mm. Um, you know, they sort of have this chain on them, right? They have to put put out stuff in places and get citations and I feel none of that. That's all gone. Wh what I worry more about is really hating what I'm doing every day and trying to pursue those citations. Like, whoa, what, what a terrible lifestyle. Um, and to be honest, we tried that my first paper, we, we, public, we tried to submit it to many journals before you know sort of going on this pecking order if you may um of, of high impact journals and at the end of the day i realized like the science didn't change why do we care so much um and it wasted it was wasted a whole you know huge amount of my time without this dependence on journal names how do you get feedback how do you become a better scientist something that's really sort of become my worldview as a scientist that you know, one has to have a lot of self-confidence in what they're doing and not really care about, you know, what what's popular and, you know, what's hot and what people, what other people want to be doing and what they think is cool. If you look at Francis. That's Francis Arnold, scientific celebrity and 2018 Nobel Prize winner for directed evolution. 
been doing great work you know for so long she gets a nobel prize and still does super great work and i imagine she will continue to do great work irrespective of the award and i don't think the award made any i mean it certainly didn't make me think any more of her or any less of her right um and in fact i would say there's other people who've gotten nobel prizes that i just don't think any more of their work afterwards you know that i say okay well you were you, you just happened to be at the right place in the right time doing the right stuff um i think but you know look at francis like what you know, she had she had she was way ahead of her time in what she was thinking and so i had that i, I knew that before she got the award what, what else what did the award matter afterwards one of the attributes but also great dangers of an award is that it tells you who knows what they're talking about when you're inexperienced in an area and trying to learn you don't always know who to trust and what to trust them on i've wasted a lot of my time because i believe someone i shouldn't have there aren't yet textbooks or papers that tell you what the truth is so you have to figure out for yourself who is credible and who is just saying irrelevant things one way that we do this is by trusting the tenured professor and the person who got the fellowships or the Nobel Prize. Or, more dangerously, just the person with the most confidence. Not that the people with awards and the confidence don't always deserve these things, just that we should listen to someone because of what made them deserving of the award or the confidence, instead of because of the fact that they received the award or because they have the confidence. Becoming a good scientist is both about learning how to discern good ideas from bad ones and about learning how to trust your own judgments over a prize committees. But I think so all of us go through these re- like not like so many rejections and mm-hmm. we think it means something. But I but you know, I don't think it means anything. You know, one year I got I, you know, my first time I the first two times I applied for NSF I didn't get it. The third time I got it, I mean, I wasn't a different person. My essays weren't substantially better. The National Science Foundation or NSF has a fellowship for all American graduate students in the sciences. Since 1952, it's funded 50,000 students, but this is still only about 10% of those who have applied for it. Challenging moment of my PhD was when I got rejected. So I had wanted to go to work with one of my scientific heroes in Stockholm on memory proteins for two years. And I had uh, three years, actually. And so I applied. I had planned for a year, applied for an award to go there to study with him for a year, got rejected the first time, and then did it all over again, planned for another year, rewrote the, wrote an application, went through many, many, many revisions. And and I went through the first round and they told me I got through the first round and they said, I have a 50, 50 chance to, you know, to the second round. And then I get this email saying, sorry, you didn't get it. And so something that I had you know, really had tried, had been looking forward to for three years and didn't happen. But the thing that I realized afterwards was six months later, I got a chance to go to Stockholm and I went to Stockholm and I spent a week there and Truly, I realized that Stockholm is really one of my favorite places on the world, you know, on, on the uh, on Earth, and that thing, things will happen. You can make them happen. Um, and that award really sucked, um, but now I know the awards don't mean anything. That you know, that you uh, as a scientist, you make things happen. I went to Stockholm for my second time this summer again, so you know, somehow one makes things happen. Um, but, you know, I, I think I do really think at the end of the day, you know, that if one focuses on doing good work as a scientist, you're probably OK. And if you're not, not so focused on becoming that professor or getting that fellowship, um, then you'll probably be OK. Um, 
and I think you also have to have an open mind that you know there might you I might not become a professor and I think I'm you know I'm okay with that finally So in high school, I didn't had no interest in school, had no interest in really in science or anything. I just sort of liked to hang out. Did you go to? I did go to math and science high school, and I just liked hanging out at that math and science high school. <laughs> anything I gained was bio-osmosis. Um, uh, so and so, I I went from the math and science high school really actually sort of beat down by seeing lots of people who were really smart. Um, and like grappling with that as like a like as a, as a teenager, um, and you know feeling like okay I'm I'm no longer the person I thought I thought it was, to going to college and you know meeting um, you know Claudio Grossman who's you know an ion channel biophysicist, um, whose sort of rule for life is just hard work, um, but Claudio was you know the way he had it was a different type of scientist. He ran a lab where you know, his office was inside the laboratory. To go to the printer, you had to walk through his office. Um, and he liked it that way. And, you know, you know, he, he and the, the lab was one, was one open space and everyone shared pipettes and shared lab space and shared incubators. Um, and they worked beautifully together and did some really good work. Mm. And they continued to do, do, do amazing stuff and have amazing ideas. You know, what a way to, to recognize that you know we're we're all just scientists here it doesn't matter we have different titles um and we all just need to do hard work mm -hmm. first thing he said when i when i when i came 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 to his lab and met him met him was you know we we use a socratic method here we i i, I may be the be the pi but that doesn't mean that i have the best ideas you know all of us have an equal chance in this you know at you know, all of us are, are equally likely to come up with good ideas and, you know, come up with criticism. And we should all criticize each other and our, and our science and be really, and, you know, try to make the best, you know, make, bring out the best in each other. And that was just, and, and, and to do that, we all have to work really hard. The idea is that, that we just, we work hard and that's what, that, that what, that's what you need as a scientist and to do good science. Um, and that's something that I've never forgotten about. And I, and, and it's really sort of, he drilled into me um and i really appreciate it because i would be someone else if not for that experience to be somebody i admire you have to be a nice person um i think that I, for me i don't i don't separate the scientist from the underlying human being and as a corollary if you're not a nice human being i don't admire i, I mean i don't admire people as scientists and i sort of discount their work oftentimes because it just is you know we're first i see myself and i see everyone as you know sort of human beings first Perhaps it is not obvious that kindness matters in science, which is supposed to be the dispassionate search for truth, the perfect marketplace of ideas. But I personally feel this sentiment. There are many times I choose to pursue one idea over another because I'd rather interact with people I respect than those who are demeaning. I know that some people are so frustrating and disrespectful that they turn the good ideas sour, and some people so encouraging that a bad idea can become a good one in conversation. Surrounding yourself with these encouraging people, who are both kind and brilliant, is possible. Something um, that's probably worth highlighting is um, is is a professor at Stockholm University, Gunnar von Heine, and mm. for people who care about the sort of you know 
the standard stuff. Gunnar was a chair of the Nobel Committee for Chemistry for many years. Um, he may still be, I'm not really sure. And a really accomplished scientist by all the traditional metrics. But he, but he, he's somebody who's, you know, who who was not, who wasn't afraid to to ask questions about membrane proteins. He's also a really nice person. I, I, both times I met him, he, you know, took time to chat with me. In Sweden, they have something called a fika, which is a sort of afternoon coffee, coffee and pastry time. And so, you know, he and other professors just come to the fika and and chat with their students. Um, which is super unique, I, I feel. Um, it's not something we do here in the States. Um, and, uh, you know, one day he you know, walked, took me down the hallway and he pointed out, you know, where Arrhenius' house is, which is near the, near the Stockholm University campus. Arrhenius is famous for explaining why reaction rates depend on temperature. Perhaps it shouldn't matter, but he won the Nobel Prize in 1903. I told them that I really, really wanted to go ice skating in Stockholm. Um, you know, they have the the temperature is such that the lakes freeze over there, so you can go 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 skate, skating on the ice. And so, um, when I was there in March, he spent I don't know he we talked about it over lunch, and he must have spent like an hour or something on his computer, just looking up places for me to do ice skating. I just I couldn't believe it. A really cool person. Mm-hmm. Um, and but just also also an awesome scientist. You know, it's great combination of great science and also. You know, personable. The way I understand Sham is that being nice or kind is not just being friendly. It is making sure that even the undergraduate in the lab gets a desk. It's caring that someone has a good visit. It's pointing out an interesting landmark. It's indicating that your contributions are valued, though you are a lowly student and they a much celebrated professor. Kindness is delivering scientific criticism without calling people stupid. But does being nice make you better at science? I think there's lots of science that 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 people do that just requires lots of hours, and I think those sort of that sort of science probably is correlated with people who aren't very nice, um, who aren't very kind, mm. um, where you just have to do lots of real work. Um, and but but yeah, even I, I, unfortunately, I just don't think those th- two things are correlated because you know you don't have to be, have a nice personality to have good ideas. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to. You ha- anybody, you know, you have to. Your ideas have to be appreciated. Um, mm. And you know, pretty much as soon as I figure out that people aren't very aren't nice, I generally, you know, I read their papers, and if they have good ideas, I appreciate them. But I'm not like, I don't. I, I'd much rather share a different paper that's a great idea. And there's no there's no shortage of papers with good ideas. question I always wonder is, how do I actually come up with a good idea? And how would I know that it was good? Luckily, Sham has some advice. I think I think that there's probably many ways to come to a good idea. Mm. But thinking hard about them is my way. Mm. Read a ton. And don't read textbooks. Read, even read Wikipedia, but read, you know, don't read things that have dogma. Um, so I would even stay away from reviews, read papers, read autobiographies that people write at the end of their careers, um, read all the current literature, read the stuff on the bioarchive, on, on preprint archives, talk to people, talk to, talk to scientists. You know, when you read, a, I always, if I read a good paper and I still have ideas, I always email the scientist. The second step is then for me is talking to somebody who really knows what they're talking about because chances are they've thought about your idea. Um, 
and they and whether they've worked on it or not maybe they probably have something to give you criticism right away Mm -hmm. but see criticism from people who know what they're talking about don't see criticism from people who i don't know just sort of maybe who who haven't thought about things as deeply as you have i think that deep criticism is really important for sham part of a good idea is not just that initially it was brilliant but that it's well developed to write down some some plain simple theory but don't get bogged down on it and then go and do it and make something and you know that's where my engineering comes in like don't be scared to do something do something you know with because of a black box you know try it and see what see what happens and then maybe you get a good idea maybe at the end of the day you can put all the stuff together see the outcome of what you've done and then you know rethink your idea and now it's a good one i think an idea is way more than what you have in your head i think you know i I would consider papers and hypotheses ideas. Uh, a really good idea is one that's sort of toyed with and played with for quite a while. And don't forget that even if your hypotheses are wrong, you're still doing important work. For, for a janitor or for the next person who's going to work on it, mm-hmm. um, and, and hopefully there is somebody who's going to work on it next, the data is the most important part of what one does in science. Um, it's the part that's sort of indisputable. Um, you know, while your analysis or hypothesis might be wrong, you know, you, your data is, is your data. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that I was able to pick up on for researchers from, you know, 10, you know, that had, had done 10 years ago or more. And that's the part that was useful to me. They're, all their hypotheses pretty much weren't. One of the goals of Not My Thesis is to figure out what is important and what is unwritten about doing good scientific research. This is even more topical today than when Heidi interviewed Sham. For those of you listening later, we are currently sheltering in place due to the coronavirus. You've probably heard disagreements about modeling and about when one knows that a vaccine is ready. There's a need to trust scientists, but also to understand how they come to their conclusions especially when their conclusions lead directly to lives saved or lost. Not that we have anything to say on these specific questions, or about the coronavirus in particular, but we have been comforted by noticing how parts of the scientific process are universal. You'll see themes from this episode that are similar to those in Chapter 1, with Tall. Both Tall and Sham struggled with what it is to do useful science. Both of them have similar views of the uncertainty of solving a previously unsolved problem. Heidi and I were struck by how multifaceted their perspectives are, encompassing technical and social aspects of our approaches to science. Ever since I interviewed Sham, I can't get what he said out of my mind. You only need a weekend to make an impact in science. I've tried to decide if that's true. Sham is exceptionally talented with computers, so maybe the normal rules don't apply to him. Or maybe coloring data shouldn't be considered making an impact? Regardless, his story changed the way I think about my scientific output. There are countable things like papers, but there are also ideas and tools. There are things that advance scientific knowledge, as well as things that build up the scientific community. There are easy things that matter a great deal, and we should undertake hard things with a hard look at what the results will mean and if it's worth the hard effort. And I should also take a hard look at what makes me feel valuable. Recognition is just a noisy metric of a great amount of inspiring and invisible work. For me, I think it is important to acknowledge that science can be separated from kindness. A discovery can be brilliant and true and wonderful, but it can still be done by a deeply terrible human. 
as our society struggles with how to deal with people doing terrible things. It's easy to stop watching Woody Allen films, but harder to ignore Richard Feynman's contributions. Feynman is a famous physicist, particularly famous at Caltech, who was also something of a male chauvinist. I'm not sure how to navigate his legacy. Maybe I can credit someone as the person with a great idea, as a great creative mind, and still want nothing to do with them and have no interest in helping advance their specific science sub-subfield. Maybe the tools of science, the conversations that allow advances to happen, that move our understanding forward, those depend on people being good and kind. To Sham and to me, it matters whether the person who did the science is kind. This episode was produced by me, Sophia Trun, with help from Heidi Klumpa, the very kind, but also critical, jet fighter of Not My Thesis. We'd like to thank everyone who provided invaluable feedback and do the unappreciated but wonderful work of the janitor, especially Ali Stevenson, Aditi Narayanan, Reina Buenconseo, and Jacob Wasserman. The music is from Blue Dot Sessions. And many thanks to Sham Salati for generously sitting down with Heidi and for improving the way we see the world and see our own science. Not My Thesis is a Caltech Letters podcast, supported by the Morhof Stedler Fund and the Student Investment Fund. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud by searching for the Caltech Letters feed and looking for episodes titled NMT. If you would like to increase the probability that Not My Thesis reaches more membranes, please share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. Even better, send us an email at notmythesis at gmail.com with questions, stories, or possibly even your thesis.